Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. One of the challenges of traveling is managing your money. If you're tired of getting crushed by bank fees and exchange rates, you need to check out wise.com. I have been a customer for over 10 years. This is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. It's been essential for me first as a traveler, then later as a digital nomad and an expat living abroad, running a business from around the world. You get one account, which allows you to send, spend, and convert money internationally, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. You can join 16 million customers, learn how the Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com slash travel. That's wise.com slash travel. Thank you to Wise for supporting today's show. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at nissanusa.com. In so many of these scenarios, I see triple win situations, you know, wins for the traveler, wins for the destination and wins for the environment, the physical place that's being visited. By learning about these things and understanding the ways that we can be kind of smarter, more thoughtful, more responsible travelers, there's nothing to lose. That is travel journalist, author and host of the Better Travel podcast, Paige McClanahan. She's here today to share three travel trends you should know. These three trends come from recent articles she wrote for the New York Times. And as we unpack these, you'll walk away with some ideas that can make you a better traveler, perhaps provide you with uh, some richer, more fulfilling travel experiences, and also can save you money. Those are just a few reasons to dive into this interview today. Plus, you're going to learn why some destinations are rethinking their tourism strategy and what that can mean for you, why parts of the tourism industry really need to change. And as a bonus, you're going to hear why I rocked the dorkiest travel accessory I've ever rocked and why it made me feel oh so good. Plus, some huge news for you digital nomads, remote workers, and anyone else out there who can take their businesses with them or is planning to in the near future. Plus, a shout out to a listener who is following her dream and doing it all in a camper van in Australia. All of that happening in today's show and much more. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. Listening to the Zero to Travel podcast, where we explore exciting travel based work, lifestyle, and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now, your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. So excited to have you here today. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you're a long-time listener, welcome back. You, of course, are not alone. You're joining a global community of listeners, and I always invite you to get in touch. Just a reminder, this is a community-powered show. Of course, I make the show for you, and I want your feedback, your suggestions, and your stories. So drop me a line, jason at zerototravel.com, or better yet, leave me a voicemail over on the voicemail box. I put in all the show notes links. And if you haven't done so yet, please sign up over at zerototravel.com. I was thinking the other day, I was like, man, we haven't had 
a sort of community hangout, like a Zoom call type thing in a while. So perhaps that's coming up. If you want to join in on that and some other good stuff, just sign up over at zerototravel.com. Today, got a wonderful interview for you today with Paige McClanahan. Be sure to check out her podcast, which she'll tell you about a bit in the interview, The Better Travel Podcast. And I'm excited to bring you this one. I always think it's important to stay on top of trends. And I think with travel or some things in life, I guess, it it can feel static, right? It doesn't feel like certain things are changing. We all know things are ever changing, but sometimes certain things feel static. In some ways, for me, travel can feel like that if you're not paying attention. It just feels like, well, you travel. It's kind of the same thing, right? Like you, you put your backpack on, you get your suitcase packed, whatever, you get on the flight, you go somewhere. Yes, the cities and the destinations are changing, but travel in and of itself, it can feel static in some ways. I mean, everybody has their routines. You have certain places you like to stay, things you like to do. But I think looking at some trends can help remind us that, hey, just like every other industry out there, travel is a changing industry as well. And there are some disruptions happening. There are attitudes that are changing on the side of destinations and travelers. And there's a lot to unpack here. So I'm really excited to bring you these three trends. And again, along the way, I think you're going to pull out some useful stuff that you can carry with you beyond this interview. Don't forget to stick around after the interview segment. I got a bunch of stuff to share with you. Of course, a shout out to a listener in this community who is in the middle of following her dream right now, which always inspires me. And you'll hear a bit about what she is up to, plus some big news for digital nomads, remote workers, location-independent business owners, and anybody else who can take their work with them. Plus, I'll leave you with a wonderful quote I just discovered the other day. I thought this one was a nice, succinct reminder on how to live life from Seneca, the Stoic philosopher. And you'll even get a fun fact. So stick around for all that now. Let's slip and slide into the interview, and I will see you on the other side, my friend. If I stumble or something, I, can I restart, and that's okay? No, no, I'm not going to edit you at all. In fact, we're going to include <laughs> this exact thing into the show right now. <laughs> Oh, I'll just swear a lot. So you have to take it out. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, some people I feel like, you know, I've done like pre-recorded radio interviews where it's pre-recorded, but like very clearly they're just going to like take that and put it on. You know, you know what I'm saying? Unless I kind of completely bombed, they're just going to sort of run it as is. But I don't know how much like, I don't know how much cleaning up you do. Yeah, I guess I do some cleaning up. It's it's more for me than the guests, I should say. <laughs> Everybody listening, the secret's out. I edit out all of my likes and ums. Actually, not all of them because you would hear them. I don't do that editing. That would be a huge job. But somebody does it, and his name's Chris, and I appreciate him for nice. making me sound much better and smarter and more eloquent than I actually am. That's why I get so excited to bring guests on, like Paige McClanahan, who are actually elegant and smart and good with words. And I'm so excited to have you here. I'm going to call you a friend of the show now, Paige. Can I do that? Absolutely, Jason. Absolutely friend of the show. Okay. Yeah. This is 
your second appearance on the Zero to Travel podcast, but very quickly, you became a friend of the show. We, we don't need multiple appearances from you. But anyway, I'm so excited to have you back. And of course, we'll include uh, some of the links in the show notes to what we mentioned here, pagemcclanahan.com. And Paige is a journalist who reports on travel and tourism from her base in the French Alps which doesn't sound terrible. We did a podcast all about her story before, so you can listen to that. She's a regular contributor to New York Times. We're going to talk about some of her articles today. Also been published in The Guardian, Washington Post, the BBC, you know, all the major outlets. And she is the host of the Better Travel Podcast. Season three is dropping. Now it is dropped by the time you're listening to this. Paige, welcome back to the Zero to Travel Podcast, my friend. Thank you so much, Jason. It's great to be here. And I just have to say before we move on, um, thank you so much. You were so kind and so generous in helping me get my podcast started. So I appreciate that. You know, it's wonderful to um, build these connections in the travel podcast community. It feels really supportive among you know the travel podcasters out there. So I feel like I was welcomed with open arms. So thank you. Thank you. Well, I mean, you've been a great friend and you were giving me a little therapy session on a Zoom call a couple weeks ago. So I'm like, what am I going to do next? What am I going to make next? I don't know. And Paige was just letting me sound off. So anyway, thank you for that. Really appreciate your presence in my life, but also here on this show, because we have a lot to talk about with the travel trends you should know. We're going to cover three of them today. And I think there's, we, we originally had five, but there's so much to unpack. I think we're going to be cool with three. But I do want to hear about the new season of your podcast and just let people know what they should expect, what's coming, what the podcast is about, because, you know, podcast listeners are always looking for new podcasts to listen to. So. Oh, thank you so much, Jason. Yeah. So the Better Travel podcast, I launched around this time last year. And we're just, um, yeah, at the very beginning of season three. And it basically came out of my, you know, my work as a journalist, as a travel journalist, you know, I get to have conversations with all sorts of fascinating people in the travel industry. You know, when I write an article, I end up using, you know, I'll have a 45 minute conversation with someone that just kind of blows my mind. And then I get to put like a one line or two line sort of quote in the article. And so I just kind of thought, you know, how can I share what I'm learning in these fascinating conversations with a broader audience? And um, so I got the idea for a podcast. So what I really try to do in the podcast, I mean, you know, it's called the Better Travel Podcast because I think travel, obviously, you know, it can be controversial. There can be a lot of challenges with travel and tourism, but it can also do a lot of good in the world. And so what I try to do on the show is bring on people, innovators, entrepreneurs, activists, writers, um, you know, who are doing good things in the in the travel world, who are ch- kind of trying to shake up the industry or push the status quo to, um, you know, make sure that travel benefits us as travelers and that it benefits the communities, um, you know, and the, the natural areas and things that we're visiting. So that's the show in a nutshell, I guess. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. I'm, I'm still learning. It's, it's a blast, though. <laughs> I love that. And it, it includes a lot of the themes, I think, that are going to come up today. I mean, if you are a traveler in this day and age, listening to the show, most likely you're, you're conscious of a lot of these things, right? And this is always the balance that I, I struggle with. Of course, I can reflect back on you know, my decade as a nomad or some of those times when I wasn't really thinking about my environmental impact as much as I was just, I'm just going to go out and explore the world. And you know, times have changed and I've changed. And I love that you have a show that touches on a lot of these subjects because it it is important and it, it is hard to find that that balance like that that's a bit of a struggle right like is it okay to take this trip 
we both believe travel makes the world a better place, but then you know that if you measure, for example, the carbon output of the flight you're on, there is a there's a direct correlation to what you choose and what you contribute to the to the environment negatively or positively. So I mean, it's a lot to consider. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot to consider. It's a lot to navigate, which is why I thought, you know, I won't have any trouble filling all the guest slots in my podcast right. because like these are conversations that, you know, will go on endlessly. Um, but as you were saying, I mean, I really come from the perspective of, you know, travel has been a huge part of my life so far and continues to be personally and professionally now. And I can just see how much benefit that I as an individual have gained from travel. Also, I live with my family in a little village in the French Alps that's hugely dependent on the tourism industry. I mean, when I think of, you know, our neighbors and, you know, our friends in, in the village, you know, people, they run uh, shuttle buses to and from the airport. They're hiking guides, they're skiing guides, they run restaurants, they run cafes. People really, you know, have you know, their livelihoods based on the tourism industry here. So being a resident here also kind of showed me the other side of the importance of tourism. And it's inspired me to really understand these issues. No, I think that's great. I mean, the reality is people are going to travel, right? And I mean, I could add in, it's changed you as an individual, you mentioned your village, but also because of the impacts you've had as an individual, it affects your work and and you're putting work on a lot of big channels, right? I mean, New York Times, one example, I know you're working on a book and some different things. And that, of course, you, you continuing to kind of share that message and spread those changes. So it's it's even bigger than the individual. And so I think we're both on the same page that like, travel's a good thing, people are going to do it anyway. So now it's just having the conversations of, you know, how can we do it in certain ways? Or what are the changes that need to be made? And I think this might be a good segue into this first travel trend. And by the way, I think we should mention that these trends are are not just something you should know about because, okay, well, it's good to have knowledge. I think these are things that are going to affect your travels, your travel experience, you know, the things you do on the ground. And that's why I'm calling this three travel trends you should know because these are things that can not only maybe sometimes enhance your travel experience, but also make you aware of uh, some other options that might be more exciting and it's not just about limiting your carbon footprint or anything like that. I think it's also about having richer experiences, right? A hundred percent. Yeah, completely. I think um, you know, so many of these in so many of these scenarios, I see like, you know, triple win situations, you know, wins for the traveler, wins for the destination, and wins for the kind of the environment, the physical place that's being visited. So I think that by, you know, learning about these things and understanding the ways that we can be kind of smarter, more thoughtful, you know, more responsible travelers. It's really like there's nothing to lose. No, I think uh, that's an, an important point because we get into these conversations and I, I feel like the first reaction for some people might be like, oh, are they, are they buzz killing my travels before? You know, that's not what this is about. This is about just travel in the new age, I'd say. The first thing that you wrote about is well, if we want to kind of frame it up as a battle royale, planes versus trains. Dun, dun, dun. Okay, that's a little dramatic, but we're talking about trains becoming more competitive with planes in Europe. And you wrote an article in Europe, it's planes versus trains. For many travelers, rail is the way to go. 
I mean, this is what's great about the podcast because you wrote the article. We can link to all this. You can read the article as a companion piece. But this is a chance to dive a little deeper. And like you said, you might interview somebody and pull out a sentence or two. But now we can go deeper on this topic. So I, I wanted to hear your kind of takeaways from this article and just your experience writing it and what you learned. For sure. Um, yeah, first of all, on the headline, I'll say, you know, every journalist is always hammering away at this, but, you know, we don't write the headlines. <laughs> so, <laughs> if I'm lucky, I'll get a look at the headline, but there's usually one headline for print and another for online. And there's maybe kind of two headlines for online sometimes. So um, the headline is slightly a moving target. And um, I often don't see it before it goes up. So somebody, I don't even know who writes it. It's not even my editor. It's somebody above her who writes it. So, or, you know, next to her or whatever. Um, <laughs> anyway, so planes versus trains, you know. I like it. Planes versus trains. I'm giving the headline person props if you're listening. Clickbait right there, man. Um, <laughs> no, so this is a super fascinating story. It's essentially describing, you know, this trend in Europe where we're seeing governments really invest heavily in rail. And of course, they've done this for a while, but I think it's really an interesting moment um, in a few different ways. One of which, and that's very relevant for, you know, travelers listening, is that sleeper trains in Europe are really having a sort of renaissance moment. And this is being driven by, you know, a few different things. A, you know, European governments are concerned about climate change and they want to reduce their, you know, their carbon output. But there's also just a huge demand from travelers within Europe, you know, Europeans who live in Europe and want to travel around and visitors to have an alternative to the, you know, kind of the stressful airplane and, you know, airport experience that a lot of us kind of got a little bit maybe fed up with after the pandemic, you know, we're coming back to travel and we're looking for a more meaningful or more interesting type of and less stressful type of travel experience. So in terms of sleeper trains, we've seen in the last year or so, um, a lot of new kind of connections coming online, for instance, you can now, as of sort of December of last year, you can take a night train from Paris to Vienna and, you know, new lines have opened up from Zurich to Amsterdam and Paris to Nice, Paris to Toulouse. Um, so there's a lot of these, these trains coming online um, or a lot of these services coming online and they're also offering new types of tickets or new types of sort of seating arrangements. So you can, for instance, book your whole, your own entire cabin with a sort of a bathroom and an ensuite situation. Um, so it's making it a lot more interesting for travelers. And it often is price competitive with flights uh, for, you know, to cover the same distance. But we can talk more about the, um, you know, the, the, the price aspect of things too. Yeah. Well, when I was a backpacking through Europe in the late 90s. Yes, it's true. <laughs> Cue the uh, Incubus or whatever soundtrack you want to put on from the late 90s. You know, that was a, a core strategy, right? It's like take the night train because then you won't have to pay for a place to sleep. And oftentimes that didn't include a bed or anything. It was more like me sleeping in the seat, kind of shuffling around and that, that whole thing. Might have been a bed involved once. I can't remember. But Awesome experience. Great for budget travelers for a lot of reasons. So to kind of come across a couple of these services in the article you mentioned, like Nightjet was one of them and europeansleeper.eu, we can link to those. And seeing how nice they're making that experience. I mean, I love the idea of being rocked to sleep on a train. I was curious about what your your experiences with night trains. Have you done the sleeper train thing I, before? I have. I have to say... Um... 
maybe it wasn't the best example or the best, the most positive experience. My then boyfriend, now husband, and I took a night train. We were living in Geneva and we took the train from Geneva to Rome on a Friday night to have like a weekend in Rome and then took it back. So, you know, we were working and without children at this point and um, went down to Rome for the weekend from Geneva. And then Sunday night, got the night train back. I remember, you know, this was, gosh, more than 15 years ago now. And I remember the, um, the train being incredibly smooth until we got to the Italian border. And then um, it was quite, maybe we shouldn't include this. This is rude to Italians. <laughs> Don't be okay. <laughs> oh, no. Um, and then I didn't, so I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep super soundly, but it was in a, a compartment with lots of other people. But what there are, what NightJet and other people are offering now is, yeah, definitely a more, um, more private experience. Um, my husband, actually, he took, he went up to the Netherlands, he went up to Amsterdam for work just a few months ago and caught this new service. He took the train from Geneva, which is near us, to Zurich, and then caught the night train from Zurich up to Amsterdam. And um, yeah, and said it was easy and fast. And just like you were saying, I mean, you, you know, you save on a hotel, you know, and you don't have to, if you're, if you had flown to Amsterdam, then you have to sort of get in from the, in from the airport into the city. Um, whereas the train delivers you straight from city center to city center. And, you know, you wake up and you're there and off you go. So it's really convenient in a lot of ways. And, you know, of course the carbon, savings are are huge and important, but also it's a more interesting travel experience, more convenient and, you know, and cost effective. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think uh, it was great that you put this on the list because I, I just want people listening. It's not about, okay, great. I'm, I'm aware of this trend now. It's more about, hey, th- there are some great new options for you. They're investing in infrastructure was one of the big points that you made in the article. So, you know, the situation you just described where you may have been rocking a bit too much. (laughs) Maybe that's, you know, part of an infrastructure investment where they're going to be repairing some of these lines or making them nicer. And all of that contributes to the experience, right? Absolutely. Yeah, certainly. I mean, if nothing else, it makes for a good story. And we still got to Rome without taking any time off work. Right. And, um, and went straight from the middle of Geneva to, you know, direct to the middle of Rome and, um, and had two full days in Rome, which I had never been to Rome at that point. So um, it was a fascinating, um, you know, fascinating, fun experience. Um, and yeah, the other point on the on the kind of competition with short haul flights is that we saw kind of coming out of the pandemic or sort of during the pandemic, um, two European governments actually banned um, short haul flights with, you know, a lot of asterisks next to that statement. <laughs> so in France, as a condition of the bailout package they offered to Air France, they wanted the, the company to stop flight services on um, on routes that had a train alternative that took less than two and a half hours to complete. So that, in effect, I think it was only sort of three short flights that were banned, although if you were kind of connecting onto a longer flight, you were still allowed to do it. Um, and Austria did the same thing. Austrian airlines, um, you know, as a condition of their um, receiving aid from the Austrian government, had to cut out some short-haul you know, domestic flights. And instead, you can actually on Austrian airlines now, if you're flying into Vienna, and you want to go to Salzburg on in one sort of 
you know, in one interaction on the website, you can buy your flight to Vienna from New York to Vienna, say, and then your train ticket from Vienna to Salzburg. So it's all very sort of integrated. But this is another way that governments are trying to support to support this sort of transition toward toward trains for the those short haul trips. Of course, campaigners, if you talk to campaigners about those kind of moves, they say it's just a drop in a bucket. You know, they should really be doing a lot more. But still, you know, I think it's an important um, an important first step. Absolutely. It's systemic change. As far as I'm concerned, it's essential for this to happen. And I I was so excited when I read that in the article because I also love that the French government's COVID bailout package for Air France, you said in the article, part of that was that they eliminated those flights that were under two and a half hours of domestic flights. And then it was later written into laws, what you said in the article. So, you know, this is a great example of yeah, to me, like this isn't really an optional thing. It's like, well, there has to be systemic change if people are going to, like, obviously, people are going to take the $10 flight if they can. It's not like that easy to just, oh, I'm just going to pick the train because I'm going to be, you know, people are busy, their time is valuable. So these systemic changes have to happen for things to turn around. You agree? Yeah. The other thing, I mean, I'll say, on the point of um, you know, kind of what consumers are looking for. I mean, this is a survey result, and you know, so what somebody says in a survey versus what they do in real life. I think I've, I'm remembering the statistic correctly. Is that something like 62% of Europeans in a fairly recent survey, I think done by the European Bank, I'll have to check that, but supported a ban on short haul flights within Europe. So Europeans are sort of ready for this. Europeans love to take the train and um, and they're ready to support it. Um, and, you know, I interviewed um, Mark Smith for the, pod, uh, for the podcast. I interviewed Mark Smith, the man in seat 61, for the article, which I know he's been a guest on your podcast. He's also been a guest on my podcast, Mark Smith, great guy. And he was saying that he's really hearing from a lot of travelers. He's hearing from a lot more travelers now than he used to. Um, who are saying they want tra- they want to travel by train because they want to travel by train. Um, at first, it used to be people would you know come to him because they were scared of flying or they had some sort of health reason they couldn't fly. Whereas now, people are really actively seeking out train travel. So I think it is something that has an appeal and has a growing appeal for all sorts of different reasons. And thankfully, we're seeing kind of governments respond and um, you know and provide these services. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. 
This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Let's get back to the show. Do you think the pandemic contributed to this in terms of people starting to open up their minds a bit more to exploring either their home country or more nearby where they live? Yes, definitely. I mean, I have to say in my kind of travels around and reporting, um, you know, as we've been in the pandemic and then coming out, that is a story that I keep hearing over and over and over again is that both the tourism operators in the country discovered their domestic, you know, sort of audience and the domestic audience discovered their, you know, their local sort of sites. And it's certainly something that we've seen here in our village, you know, the number of, usually this is a pretty French destination. We get a lot of French tourists here. Um, but during the pandemic, so many more French people were coming than even more than normal. You know, the fact that we were all home for a long time and not traveling around, I mean, I think that that absolutely is going to force you to rethink things um, and how that plays out. I mean, I guess it's still playing out now. We're seeing how people are thinking differently about travel coming out of it. But I definitely think that, um, you know, looking closer to home, you know, within sort of a four or five hour, say, radius of where you live um, is certainly one of the one of the impacts of the pandemic. Yeah, making this affordable for people, I think, is is the key, right? Because when it comes down to it, a lot of these decisions are going to be based, well, they're going to be based on the experience you want and also money. And so there's a bit of, of course, both. But hands down to me, it's so much more enjoyable to get on a train than it is to go to the airport and deal with all of the airport things in in a lot of cases, maybe not across the board. Depends on which airport you go to, of course. Newark, New Jersey, I'm looking at you. Don't want to go to you, but I, I end up having to when I go home. I sent you this article recently uh, about the nine euro ticket in in Germany. That was a recent thing that I think illustrates some of the points we're making here, where they had this flat fee public transport initiative, and I guess the idea was to help sort of battle inflation and give people a really cheap way to get around on public transport. Only nine euros for like all month and you could take everything except for high speed long distance trains and a, a lot of interesting things coming out of this it was a 3 month experiment if you will and i was on dw.com which is the uh, it's like the german news 
something. Deutsche Welle. See how, prof- see how professional I am as a journalist? Deutsche Welle. There you go. The German yeah, there wave. You go. <laughs> <laughs> Let the real journalists come in and save me. And, and they said over 52 million tickets were sold over that three-month period. And quote, some 10% of the approximately 1 billion monthly journeys taken using the 9 euro ticket replaced the use of a car. This prevented around 1.8 million tons of CO2 going into the atmosphere. Now, all that sounds good in theory. It sounds like as of yesterday at the time of this recording, they're, they're renewing not the 9 euro, but they're going to do another low monthly thing. They don't know what the cost is. They haven't, but they've sort of committed to the initiative. And yet there were challenges, of course. You read stories about people, you know, the trains being so crowded, but then other people loved that they could start using public transportation. And it was good publicity, I think, for public transport and giving people that experience. I'm just curious what you thought of this whole experiment. Yeah, thank you so much, first of all, for sending me that article, because I had not seen that. Um, And I think it's, it's fascinating and indicative of maybe where we're headed because I was doing some more looking around after I read the article you sent me, and I saw that Spain, actually, as of the beginning of September, is offering completely free rail journeys for distances of up to, I think it's 300 kilometers, so like, what's that, like 180 miles, until I think through the end of the year, and that's for residents and visitors. So no need for like a Spanish residency card or anything. You could just arrive and um, and get a free train ticket. And again, like in Germany, they're doing it to combat inflation and the energy crisis and kind of cost of living issues that they're, you know, that their residents are dealing with. So, I mean, it's this fantastic network that they already have that they can draw on um, and encourage people to use. I think it's interesting. And I'll be curious to see whether other governments in Europe kind of step up and maybe follow their lead. Yeah, it sounds like with Spain doing it, it's a copycat situation. It's going to be interesting to see if that if that trend kind of spreads across Europe. In the end, although you know you can see both sides, and it sounds like there were a lot of challenges, like there are with anything. I feel like well, people were pretty stoked to only pay nine euros. It's helping them financially, obviously. And if you can get more people to have the public transportation experience and even if a percentage of them hate it but a percentage of them get turned on to it i just think that's a good thing in the end you know absolutely i mean sometimes you know maybe it's just that little taste that you need you know it's something that you kind of hadn't thought to use before because it was just easier to take the bus or to drive or whatever but now actually because it's so affordable sure you'll give it a shot and actually yeah it's kind of nice and kind of convenient and now you'll keep using it. So no, I think it's a great, great initiative. Okay. To tie this up before we move on to the next trend, in the end, will trains win over planes? Is it a good thing? Will it actually happen? Let's say three to five years from now. Ooh, ooh, three to five years from now. No, I mean, we're still going to be seeing, you know, I think pretty clearly we'll still be seeing a mix of plane travel and train travel within for people moving around within Europe. I mean, certain things like if you want to get from Copenhagen to Lisbon, it's going to be a long time before that journey is going to be, you know, more affordable by train than by plane. And, and this infrastructure 
you know, they're invest, they've invested a lot already, they're investing a lot more, but it's the kind of thing that takes, you know, it's on the sort of three to five to 10 year sort of time horizon to build all these things. But no, I would say as a sort of a final thought, maybe just to pass along a tip that Mark Smith shares um, in the article, is that if you're looking to travel around Europe and you want to get a good deal, um, that your best option is to book probably two to three months in advance, not like nine months, and but not like five days. And um, and he recommends a couple of sites like um, Trainline and Rail Europe, which he says are really excellent. If you're looking to do one of those cross-border um, train journeys, you know, if you're trying to travel within France, you go to the you know the French Railways site SNCF. But if you want to get you know across country, these two sites, Trainline and Rail Europe, are really helpful for um, you know showing you the options and giving you a good deal. It's a process, right? It's a slow process, but I think it's definitely, I think it's very clear the direction in which it's heading. Yeah, I definitely think this is something people should be aware of because of initiatives like Germany and Spain and some of the things we mentioned. So even if you're listening to this six months from the time that this is uh, being recorded, understanding that this is a trend, it just means you're understanding that hey, there might be some more options available to you as a traveler that you're not aware of. And maybe you should look into a train or some of these other potential deals happening uh, in a country you're visiting because you might not have to take the plane even if you just assume, all right, well, I'm going to have to you know, fly here. Maybe there's like a cushy overnight you know, sweet thing with a white tablecloth and dinner included. Like you just don't know. So it's just, I think that's uh, just from a travel experience perspective. I think this is important to be aware of because it can save you money. It can give you a better experience. There are a lot of benefits to this. So thanks for, thanks for putting together that article and letting us dive a little deeper into it here. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for your interest. The second trend we believe you should be aware of is uh, based on Paige's recent New York Times article, Stockholm instead of Rome, October instead of July, how heat waves are changing tourism in Europe. I think that last sentence is the key point there. You want to talk about this article? Yeah, for sure. Well, another quick, I didn't write the headline moment. Um, I think I, <laughs> I was reading that one attracted a lot of comments, which is always kind of fun. To, usually, usually fun to see, um, you know, comments are... It's hotter in Stockholm now. Are a good barometer, but like, think one person like pointed out like you didn't even mention Stockholm in the article, and I'm like, I know, I didn't write the headline. Headline writer, where did you get Stockholm from? Like, come on, like <laughs> it sounds like you have a beef with this headline writer. You all <laughs> got to sit down for a, coffee it's and an hash per- I have no idea. Like, it's some nameless, faceless person inside the you know the black hole of New York Times who writes headlines. Probably a team of them. They're very good. Oh my god, writing headlines is so hard. And you know, when you file, like when you send your copy, it's, it's a kind of, you can show you're, you're new, you're an amateur. If you sort of suggest a headline, because like, you know, you just have to file it with your, with your name at the top and no headline. They're going to, they're <laughs> going to take care of that for you. Don't, don't worry your little Got head about it. that one. Yeah. Anyway. So yes, this was a fascinating um, piece to, to research and write. Essentially, I got an email from my my New York Times editor um, in the middle of July, when there were all of these headlines about like, oh, the you know the runway at Luton Airport in London is melting, and you know wildfires and record breaking heat, and so she sent me this email being like, Paige, you know, 
we're talking and, you know, we're wondering like, how is this changing travel? Is this kind of changing people's travel plans? Like, do you think this might be a story? Um, And I said, I don't know, but let me try to find out. So then I just went off and called and interviewed as many people as I could, you know, and in that sort of situation, when you're kind of given an open kind of remit, you know, it's really important to cast a super broad net, right? Um, Because you kind of was there a story? Like, I didn't know. Like, if there wasn't a story, it's my job to say there's no story here, so move on. But um, I called a bunch of travel agents, you know, government people, tourism operators, um, you know, travelers themselves. And I kept kind of hearing the same thing, which, you know, is always a good sort of sign that you're onto, onto something. And that is that, yeah, essentially, Europe is um, is particularly prone to heat waves um, for scientific reasons that I don't fully understand. Um, and these heat waves are going to become more intense and longer and more frequent in the future. And this is already changing the way that travelers are thinking about managing, you know, their time on the continent. So I spoke to a lot of travel advisors, you know, formerly known as travel agents who were saying that their clients were calling them and asking not to cancel. People weren't wanting to cancel their trips because they're so desperate to travel, but they were saying, yeah, could we go to Amsterdam instead of Rome? Or can we switch that, you know, August trip to September or October? Or, you know, is it possible to um, actually change our, you know, we're supposed to do this like walking tour of Rome at two o'clock in the afternoon. Is it possible to change that to kind of five or six o'clock in the evening? So there were lots of these different ways that people were, um, you know, kind of reacting to the the heat. Um and but the the biggest takeaway that I had from from all of those interviews and the article that I ended up writing was that essentially this is not a fluke. You know, this is going to be the the case for summer travel for you know the foreseeable future. And essentially, extreme heat, especially in Europe, is something that we all need to take into account when we're planning um, our summer travel to the continent because. Um, it's just a fact of life now. And there are all these different kind of ways that we might think about that, but it is something that we need to consider. Yeah. I think before, when you look at the perks of traveling in shoulder season, or I always love traveling in off season or shoulder season, it was always about accessibility and cost, right? It, it was like things weren't as crowded. You could get a hotel cheaper. It was just a, it's always a pleasant time to be somewhere in shoulder season. I feel, but this is adding another layer to that, right? The heat wave thing. We all know it's it can be hot in Rome in the summer, but this is what you're saying here. This is a a scientific trend and another level, something that we really need to be aware of even more. So when you're planning your, I'm just thinking of some practical things as as I as we talk through this. What you mentioned about somebody travel or calling their travel advisor to change their yeah, food tour or whatever they were doing, try to get an evening slot. This is a practical thing to think about, right? Like, hey, when you're booking tours on the ground, if you're going to be in one of these hot locations, maybe you want to do it in the early morning or the late evening. These are like things that can affect your travel experience on the day-to-day basis. Completely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there were all sorts of really usable sort of takeaways that I got from all the conversations I had, especially with the travel advisors who are really kind of dealing with this stuff on a day-to-day basis. One is, you know, kind of thinking about your hotel. Like if you're planning to be in London at the end of July, say, you know, there's a chance you could be there on a day that's what, like, you know, 20 degrees C, 70 degrees Fahrenheit and drizzly. 
or there's a chance you might be there on like a 40 degree, you know, 100 degree Fahrenheit day and you're stuck in a three-star hotel without air conditioning. And so like thinking about, especially in Northern European cities, air conditioning is really exceptional unless you're looking at a five-star, all the five-star hotels will have it. But yeah. it's sort of, I mean, I live in Norway. We don't have air conditioning. Yeah, exactly. Air conditioning here. Exactly. And um, which is fine, you know, probably 50 weeks a year, right? In most of these places. But if you want to travel at the height of the summer, that's, um, and you want to go to these Northern European places, you know, you'll be able to find air conditioning in Madrid, probably in in Rome, in a three-star hotel. But good luck in Paris or Frankfurt or London or Edinburgh. Um, so I think that's, that's a very sort of concrete thing that you can just think about and either be ready to adjust and sort of roll with it or, um, you know, maybe look for a hotel that has has air conditioning if that's a really sort of an important important thing for you. Another key thing that the travel advisors was saying that was that, um, you know, looking for coastal cities where at least you have sort of a sea breeze, um, you know, so going to, you know, maybe Barcelona versus Madrid or, you know, somewhere along the coast in Italy instead of Rome or Milan um, is something that they were finding was working for their clients in terms of helping them be in Europe at sort of the height of one of these these heat waves. And also just one travel agent had, um, travel advisor, excuse me, had the, this tip of, um, you know, just traveling with one of those little like portable spray bottles with a fan attached so that you can at least give yourself a little relief in the middle of the day. She said, especially, I think, um, you know, I think she called it like a godsend, especially if you have kids. So packing something like that uh, can also be a, yeah, make a big difference to your actual experience while you're traveling. It's so funny. As somebody who traveled to Florida this summer, I can tell you that the heat is a factor, as you all know. And no, it's funny you're bringing that up because my mom (laughs) showed up with a suitcase full of these towels that you could wet and put around you that would stay wet for a really long time. Interesting. And the neck fan, the neck fan thing. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> what's, what's a neck fan? It's, it's a, it's a thing you wear. It looks like headphones, but instead of ear things that spit out music there, those parts are fans. And then you can turn it on and it just blows it blows a fan on you. And, and, you know, my, my teenage nieces are like, well, no way. And we're all thinking, this is funny. <laughs> Yet there I was at Disney World with my wet cloth around my neck and my neck fan on, enjoying my own personal air conditioning unit. Amazing. <laughs> I have never heard of this invention, but that sounds, that sounds like a game changer for summer travel. Jason, maybe you need to make an investment in this company that's making these things. Zero to travel neck fans. We got to do a, a parody commercial, I think. <laughs> no, it's funny because here in Norway, there's a popular term called uh, Sedin or Sedentur, which is basically means, hey, we're going to travel to the south. It's Norwegians flocking in, in mass to southern Spain or the Mediterranean and things like that. Typically during the summer and before I lived here, I guess when I first got here, I thought, well, I mean, you know, when you have a nice summer day in Norway and the light and, and it goes on forever and it's just such beauty and such fresh air and just such a great place to be, why are you all leaving to go to now is what 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 is a screaming hot place? But on the other hand, I realized Norwegian summers aren't always like that. But now that this climate change is happening and we're starting to see more, the effects of it more and more, I think that that 
to your point, that's going to kind of decrease people going to the Mediterranean, to the South and leaving Norway during the summer. If it's going to be nice here, then it's, it almost seems absurd. Like, it, like maybe it might reverse everything. Like everybody from Spain is going to start coming up here. I don't know. Which I think, you know, this trend... Well, do you think this could have the dual benefit of also providing relief from over-tourism? Yes. I mean, I think to the extent that it does like spread out the season a little bit. So you avoid those kind of like the few, the craziness of those few kind of peak weeks at the, at the height of the summer to the extent that you can kind of pull that out and get people traveling earlier and later than I think certainly it could help. Um, and also spreading people around. I'm remembering that I actually interviewed a man from the Norwegian Ministry of no, no, the Norwegian Tourist Board for the article. I didn't end up quoting him in the piece, but one question that my editor had was she was like, Yeah, yeah, are the Scandinavian countries seeing like a surge in visitors? You know, because people want to avoid, they want to go to a cooler destination. So it's like, Okay, well, let me ask, you know. And it was really interesting conversation with him, but he was very like hesitant. Like he didn't want to say, Look, we're profiting from you know, the sort of the hellish weather that our European compatriots are experiencing further south. But still, you know, he's saying like, Norway has fantastic, you know, beautiful natural offerings for tourists. And clearly, it's a different climate. So I think that people will be looking more outside of the sort of the normal, the kind of quote unquote sort of classic destinations if they're worried about getting caught um in a heat wave. I think to be honest, yeah, Norway sounds like a fantastic place to go um, you know, the last week of July, much more so than, I don't know, the coast of Spain or something for sure. Well, we're still waiting for y'all to come for a visit. You know, I've never <laughs> been to Norway. Never been to Norway. Here you go. I think my husband's been to Oslo like for a work meeting. Um, but no, he really wants to go skiing in the sort of the fjord lands. He wants to do a winter kind of like ski touring trip, which sounds, which sounds very cool. But yeah, Norway sounds amazing. I wanted to ask you a question as a mother of two. Uh, this is my conundrum right now in life. How can I get around the obligations to travel during the summer? That this is the trick. I mean, I, I don't know if you have a snappy answer for this you know it's a challenge right like i i want to travel in the off season i don't want to travel in the high season i don't want to go to disney world in in june or whatever we went ever again really that was enough that one time when everybody's there and it's so hot so it's kind of like the double whammy but you know school has a certain um, schedule we have to keep and, and there are these sort of family obligations and other people listening have different obligations and can't always go where you want when you want but I mean I guess but we can go where we want we can just choose a different destination not one that may be scorching hot but yeah I was just wondering do you have any thoughts around kind of traveling you know in a way that you're not with the, all of the masses during the peak time I when everybody's know. off for the summer and everything. I know. Yeah, it is a challenge, isn't it? Because I mean, here in France, like we are absolutely, you know, in lockstep with, you know, all French schools. They staggered the the holidays a bit in February and April, but otherwise like every starts on the same day, finishes on the same day. So you're all heading off at the same moment. Yeah. One thing I would say is, um, you know, it's something that can be useful as being aware of 
the um, the school break sort of schedule in the destination that you're traveling to. So for instance, if you're an American family hoping to come to France, you know, all French schools, they break up like the last day of school is like usually July 2nd or 3rd or 4th or something. So all French kids are in school throughout the month of June. So if you, you know, if your kids finish school, say June 10th in the US, and you want to fam- plan a family trip to France, coming in the middle of June can be a really nice time. Um, you know, you won't have all the French families already on vacation. Um, most European kids, certainly all British kids are in school for the month of June. So that can be a time to come when you're sort of, obviously, you know, the kids in your neighborhood are off, but the kids in the place you're going to are still in school. So being aware of those and and making use, like our kids have a two-week break at the end of October, beginning of November, which is, you know, kind of classic shoulder season and a lot of destinations. So, um, yeah, so taking advantage of those, you know, the kind of October break, if there's like a February break or April break, um, taking advantage of those to to travel. But yeah, it's it's tough. It's one of those things that's just like, phase of life, you know, got to, you know, manage it for a while. But I know my my husband is actually taking our older daughter out of school for a day and a half next week. Um, They're going uh, to England to go sailing with an old friend of my husband's and his daughter, um, a little daddy-daughter sailing trip. So, you know, occasionally you can take them out, but like, you know, we do that on, uh, it's very exceptional. (laughs) Yeah, but I understand. I mean, that that's a great tip though. You you provided just thinking about, hey, what's the schedule for the people in the country you're visiting? Is there a way to work around that? Because, of course, people in those countries, they go on trips and everything, too. I know we're pretty heavily focused on Europe here with this conversation, but that's where we both live. And a lot of the articles are, are based around here. It's a very popular place to come. But I think these trends obviously go across across the board in a lot of places. We'll be right back. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day. I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press, but I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago and immediately I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now let's get back to the show. 
Let's move on to the third and final one, which we kind of settled on. Maybe the overarching trend is this idea of destinations sort of rethinking their own tourism industry. And you had a great example around that. And I just wanted to hear your sort of philosophy on this and and then share a bit about the experience you had. And um, why I'll, I'll leave it nameless right now. Okay. Okay. Fantastic. Um, well, yeah, speaking of, you know, summer travel or travel during sort of school breaks with your kids, um, I spent about four weeks with my family in Hawaii in July and August this past summer, which was, which was fantastic. And um, my sister actually lives in Honolulu and has lived there for almost 20 years now. So I've been to Hawaii a number of times over the years, and this was the second time we've gone with the kids. So, um, but yeah, I think Hawaii is a really, really interesting example of the trend that you mentioned of a destination that is really in the sort of the process of going through a sort of a deep rethink, I would say of, you know, its approach to tourism and the balance between, you know, how the tourism industry serves visitors and how it serves residents. And, you know, of course in Hawaii, because it's this Island, you know, so remote in the middle of the Pacific during the pandemic, you know, the government there basically shut off flights. I mean, they really completely cut off, the tourism industry completely because there just are only so many hospital beds in Hawaii. And so Hawaii really experienced a, you know, a complete absence of, of tourists. And they, and this was just off the back of 2019 when they had a record breaking year, 10.4 million people came to Hawaii um, as tourists in 2019. And then of course, you know, by, you know, four or five months into 2020, that figure was down to zero. Going through that experience. Crazy. Yeah. So when I was in Hawaii, I was um, spending time with people in the tourism industry. And I was um, doing some reporting for the book I'm writing about the travel and tourism industry. And I'm trying to understand this shift and who's behind it and what's behind it. And I would just say, you know, maybe (laughs) I could ramble on for a long time about this topic, but people there saw during the pandemic just how much they had been giving up to the tourism industry. And there is a real realization now that they want to do it. And they still want their visitors. They still want, want tourists. They want travelers to come and experience Hawaii but they want to do it on different terms. And so that now they're in the process of figuring out what those terms are and how they want to move forward. So it's a really interesting time to be thinking about travel and tourism in Hawaii. And I, I feel really lucky to have had the chance to, um, to go there and, and kind of see this in action. Yeah. And talk to people that experienced that because who, who can think of a time when since Hawaii became a destination, there wouldn't be a time when no tourists came. It must have been a crazy experience for everybody. Like, oh my gosh! Like the people that live here, there's no, there are no tours here. <laughs> it must have been totally different. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, there was probably a little dip after nine eleven, and maybe after like the two thousand eight financial crisis. But yeah, but not nothing. nothing. Not nothing. Right. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time when I was in Hawaii with this guy, uh, John DeFries, who's the head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority. And he's the first native Hawaiian to hold this position. 
And I did a Q&A with him. He's been on my podcast last year, actually. And I did a Q&A with him for the New York Times that was published um, in August. So just after I left Hawaii. And he described to me, you know, standing on Kalakaua Avenue, which is like the main drag in Waikiki. So if you've ever been to Waikiki, like Kalakaua is, you know, there's like all these like super high end kind of fashion stores and, you know, palm trees everywhere. And it's just kind of like tourist la la land, right? Waikiki. And he said it was like, nine o'clock on a Saturday night or something, he's standing in the middle of Kalakau Avenue and cannot see a single moving thing. And he said it was eerie. It was like a film set. But then I forget, he said it was also like, he also knew that what that represented was an economic collapse for the state of Hawaii that was going to take a long time to, to rebuild. So on one hand, you know, he described feeling this sort of like the joy of, having sort of these beaches. He was actually born in Waikiki in the 1951 and grew up there, you know, within his, you know, with his like family and uncles who taught him how to fish on the waters there. Um, so he described this sort of amazing sense of joy of having, you know, this kind of space back at the same time, this deep sort of fear and anxiety of how they're going to survive economically without, without visitors. But completely, it's like this yeah, completely weird experiment that they had because of the pandemic. COVID was a hard reset in so many ways. This is one of them impacting the travel experience, it sounds like. It's interesting to think that, I think the words that you used were, they had a chance to kind of think about what they were giving up to tourists. When oftentimes I think the tendency is to think about a destination as wanting to attract tourism, bring in that sort of economic benefit of tourism. And now there's just so much more awareness around what that means for the local community, which I think is is a great change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 I would say that this kind of trend, it definitely started in Hawaii before the pandemic. And I think that's the same is true in a lot of destinations, certainly Amsterdam is another one that I would highlight that's been thinking about um, these questions about how to make sure that tourism is really positive for visitors and for locals. So actually in Hawaii, they started, gosh, I'd have to look to see, I think it was just before the pandemic, um, this Malama Hawaii campaign, which is um, a new kind of their marketing strategy. And maybe like put a pin on that, like whether it started before the pandemic or during or just after, but it's in the past couple of years, they started this Malama Hawaii as their marketing campaign. And Malama in the Hawaiian language means to take care of or to tend to, right? And so basically their entire message that they're sending to visitors is come and help us take care of our islands, which I think is a really lovely sentiment. And it's saying, you know, we want you to be our guest and we want you to come and help us care for this place that we love, that you love, that we all want to benefit from. And as part of this, you know, it's a marketing campaign, but at the same time, they're also developing um, and supporting new tourist experiences that allow people to come to Hawaii and do things like, um, you know, contribute to reforestation, like tree planting in um, a natural area or um, beach cleanups or clearing invasive grasses from like, you know, a sort of a historic fish pond. I saw that in action when I was there. Um, and they're realizing that actually there is a demand, like travelers, you know, we as travelers, when we go to a place, like we don't want to feel like we're invading somebody's backyard and they don't want us there. We want to, you know, we want to feel like we're 
contributing to something and that we're respecting the place we're going to. And they said that they're seeing a lot of interest from travelers in this in these kinds of experiences that are a little bit more, you know, in depth or more involved than, you know, sitting on your lounge chair on the beach in Waikiki and having a Mai Tai. Like, you know, you could do that too, but don't just do that, I think is what the is the message that they're trying to to send um, to visitors now. And there's a lot of momentum behind this kind of rethinking of the approach to to tourism from the industry and from residents and from sort of individual level operators from the government. So I think it'll be really interesting to see where tourism in Hawaii goes over the next three to five years. Yeah, I love that concept. It's like uh, trying to create some synergy between the two instead of sort of separating the tourists from everybody else, which is always naturally going to happen. But you know that feeling, Paige, when you're you might be the typical tourist and, and you may have an interaction with somebody and, and you know they're just seeing you as this sort of tourist-sucking resource. You know, I, I don't know. I, everybody's had that feeling. You're just like, oh, like I'm just... Yeah. Come visit and I want to, you know, be a good person and, and experience your place. And you know. Yeah, you know, that, that <laughs> reminds me. We were in Florence earlier this year on a family trip. And we went in February, actually, our kids have a, a two week break in February. And in February, our village is just inundated because we live in a place that has a ski, a big ski hill, right? So um, so we're like, okay, well, let's drive. We did this like road trip down to Italy. And we we had we spent some time in, in Florence. And I remember I walked into a shop at some point that was like, not in the middle of Florence, but kind of on the outskirts. It was just like a little bakery or something. And I kind of like smiled at the guy behind the counter. He smiled at me and was chatting with a customer. And at this point, I think I wasn't, it wasn't obvious that I was a tourist. But then the the instant I opened my mouth, obviously it becomes obvious I'm a tourist. And the look on his face, it just changed. You know, like he had been welcoming, like in a way that kind of broke my heart a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like he could tell, like I went from being sort of a lady who could be, you know, I don't know, maybe I could, I look like maybe I could be Italian. I don't know. People often guess I'm French um, to being like, this woman is a tourist. And I just saw that like shift. It was like a sort of a, a shadow pass over his face. Right. But that like kind of broke my heart because that just tells me that Florence that he's he's had bad experiences, right? And that you know the place where he lives has gotten to a point where tourists have become a negative thing. And I think you know that's not. I don't blame him at all, and I don't blame myself at all for sort of you know coming in and buying whatever loaf of bread from his shop or whatever I was doing. It's just like it, that's a sign that the system needs to change, right? That's a sign that the government needs to do more to look after the people who elected them, right? And to manage this industry. So, you know, none of us want to be the ugly tourist, right? And I think there are certain things that we can do to make sure that we're kind of responsible and thoughtful travelers. Um, but I got to say, like, so many of these over tourism challenges, I think really the onus, like, you know, the biggest responsibility lies with the governments because they're the ones who can set the rules and set the terms and, um, and they need to be listening to the, the people who elected them and responding to their concerns. Um, so that's what I'm seeing in Hawaii. It's still at an early stage in Hawaii, but they're doing it and they're really motivated. So yeah, because no traveler wants, wants to be that person, right? Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And I think that's a great, 
place to end this. So many uh, great points here. And I, I just so appreciate that willing to come on and kind of talk through some of this stuff. And I know you're working on a book about a lot of uh, the themes that we covered today, and I'm so excited for that. So we'll keep everybody here posted on the book and hope to have you back on for uh, future episodes, being a, an official friend of the show here. Uh, I'm hoping that you'll say yes. Absolutely. We should recap those three travel trends. We talked about the planes versus trains. We talked about um, the heat waves, changing travel in Europe, and of course, how destinations are rethinking their tourism industry. Where should people stay in touch with you? Just go to the website, sign up for your newsletter type of thing, go to the podcast. What do you want? All the things? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think going to the website, pagemcclanahan.com, um, because there you can find you know links to the podcast, links to my recent articles, as well as my newsletter. And so, yeah, I would say if anybody's interested in following along, I do a lot of travel for my work, um, you know, both for the book and for my New York Times and other reporting so sign up for the newsletter. I send it out once a month. Um, just a little update. I try to keep it fun and, and short with some pretty pictures in there. So um, yeah, sign up and, and follow along. And, and hey, say hi. I, I always love to hear from, from readers and listeners. So yeah. And of course, one more time, the Better Travel Podcast Season 3 out now. I'm a Paige McClana fan. No, I didn't just say that. Sorry. I'm a, I'm a Paige McClanahan fan. Sorry, I had to do it. I know it's so cheesy and bad, but I couldn't resist. Anyway, I appreciate your time and I look forward to staying in touch and, and having you back on soon. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been a lot of fun and absolutely, I would love to come back. So thank you so much for the invitation. Awesome. Take care. have it. A special thanks to Paige McClanahan once again for stopping by the show, letting us dive a little deeper on those three travel trends she wrote about in the New York Times recently. And we'll link to all of the uh, various things we mentioned here in the show notes. Don't forget to check those out for more information if you want to dive even deeper. Plus, a link to my voicemail box if you'd like to leave a message about this show or if you want to recommend any future guests or just say hi drop me a message or a line via email. Now, some huge news for the digital nomads and the remote workers and the location-independent entrepreneurs out there. If you love Portugal, you're in luck because they have a new visa for you. And this will make it easier than ever for you to stay in that country for a longer period of time. I'll read you a little bit from an article I'll link to in Euronews.com, which sums it up. Basically, quote, under the new scheme, remote workers will be able to live and work in the country for up to 12 months. To qualify, applicants must earn at least 2,800 euros per month, four times Portugal's minimum wage. And the article goes on to say, quote, the new visa officially called the Residence Visa for the Exercise of Professional Activity Provided Remotely Outside the National Territory is designed for working professionals. Boy, that's a that's a wordy name for the visa. Anyway, the article says it's an alternative to the existing D7 visa and talks about how you can apply, which is just going to the Portuguese consulate in your home country or Portugal's immigration agency, Servicio de Estrangueros y Fronteras. So there you go. Of course, Portugal being a very popular place for digital nomads, expats, only becoming more popular, and I've been twice and absolutely love it. So 
there's a shout out to Portugal there and their new visa trying to bring some more of the uh, the nomads and the people that can roam with their work into their country. So that is big news. Wanted to share that with you. Also, I thought I'd share a fun fact about Portugal because why not? While we're on the topic, we can sneak a little fun fact <laughs> into this episode. I saw this one on Portugal.com and apparently Portugal is home to the world's largest cork forest. Quote, Portugal is the biggest cork producer in the world and produces more than 50% of the world's cork supply. It is also home to the world's largest cork forests, making up 34% of the world's area of cork forests. So there you go. I guess that's convenient as wine producers, right? They have the cork forest right there. You can just stuff it right in the bottle. You're good to go. All right. One last thing before I let you go, and then I'll leave you with a quote. I got to give a shout out to... uh, Lucy, who's out there living her dream. She is an independent singer-songwriter, actually goes by the uh, name Leo, is her artist name, L-E-O, and can link to her profile on Spotify. But she is traveling around the east coast of Australia in her camper van, performing gigs and exploring new places, traveling, living in the van, doing the thing. And I just Love that. I admire that somebody's getting out there and and living their dream, chasing the dream, living it, enjoying the process, the ups and downs, the highs and lows, and everything that comes with it. The point is she's out there doing it. So I've been trading emails with her, and she has kindly provided one of her tracks, one of her songs, Evergreen, it's called. So before I let you go, I will leave you with that track, and you can give a listen to Leo. So anyway... I wanted to say congratulations to her, and she said that she finds it inspiring and encouraging while she's on her own path to hear the conversations with the people about their travel experiences on the podcast. So it's I just love this. I love that we all just can share, and that you know can light a fire for somebody, and, and their fire lights a fire in somebody else, and on and on and on. It's a beautiful thing. Before I play Leo's song, Evergreen, let me share this quote I saw from Seneca yesterday. Of course, Seneca, the famous Stoic philosopher, and this one grabbed me. I always like when something can be so short and so impactful, when you can read a quote and you're just like, wow, I've never seen this one before, and this is a a great uh, philosophy to kind of embrace in in life. And the quote was, don't stumble over something behind you. That's it. Don't stumble over something behind you. Love that. All righty. I think we got everything, right? Did I deliver everything I promised today? I sure hope so. Thanks for listening to the show and for being a part of this global community. One last time, please get in touch. Would love to hear from you. I will let you go with the sounds of Leo. This is Evergreen. I'll see you next week. Peace and love to you and yours. Like a 
We. 